Welcome to Accession. Today, we're at the Worcester Art Museum, in the South Wing. The wing without the shipwrecks and ceilings and winking statuettes. Except this time, go past the doors with ceramics on either side. You're gonna head all the way up to the very top of the tower. Once there, and once you can see the giant stone pole in the middle of the room, head to your left, into the room for Mesoamerican art. Now there's a lot in this room, and we're actually going to be talking about a couple of things in here today. But to start, head to the back left corner of the room, and find a case full of statuettes and figurines. They've all paused to look up at you, and smile, but they've got to get back on their way. There's a game to catch, and they don't want to miss a moment of it. Today, we're looking at Worcester Art Museum, accession number 1947.25. Model of a ball game scene. It's a game that we've played for 3,000 years. From the times of the early Olmeca, who first discovered the process of turning rubber into a ball, through the Maya, the Veracruz, and the Toltec, who took the game to new levels of skill and dedication, all the way to now when we, the Aztecs, have perfected the game. The name, the attire, the traditions, the myths, these things have all changed from culture to culture, but the heart of the game has stayed the same. In its history, many have played, many have won, and many have died, but some stories are about more than the winners and losers. They are about the heroes, the heroes who have defined and will define bravery and honor for generations of ballgame watchers yet to come. And among these stories, none rings through time immemorial more than the tale of the famous Messon Frogs, the brothers who came to be known as the Tushtlatu, and the act of courage that saved the game. That's the story we want to tell you today. You see, the ballgame is really quite simple. That's Mekit, historian of the ballgame during the late Veracruz period. The ballgame court is shaped like an eye with walls on either side and open zones at the end of the field. Players can bounce the rubber ball off of their hips, knees, and shoulders, and off of the walls to keep the ball in play, with the goal being to get the ball into your opponent's end zone. Sure, it requires some skill, but the frogs couldn't even muster that. In the spring of 889, try as they might, practice as hard as they may, the frogs lost game after game. And normally that's not a big deal. It's not unheard of to have a losing streak. But the frogs hadn't been in a losing streak in 888. Which is precisely why they were chosen to play in the sacrificial games of 89 in the city of Tajin. Their fans went crazy. I mean, Messen was just a small coastal town. They hadn't had a team compete in the sacrificial games in years. This was a huge opportunity for the frogs, but an even bigger opportunity for the people of Mesa. Like any other sport, the people in the stands weren't just watching for the enjoyment of the game, they had a financial reason to watch as well. The stakes! Oh man, the betting would get big on the sacrificial games. People in the stands threw bets left and right. Small bets, big bets. It wasn't just about winning and losing. It was about the moment-by-moment -moment plays. It got intense up in the stands. 
So when the frogs lost practice game after practice game, people were necessarily worried. This is the diary of one such frogs fanatic named Nelly, who followed the team very closely in 89 and wrote down all of her experiences. It didn't bode well for the players, for our town, for our people, for our spirit. Mostly we were just worried for Ichitaka. But Ichitaka was clearly just worried for himself. Ichitaka was the leader of the frogs. And when you lose a match in the sacrificial games, well, it's kind of in the title. The leader of the team becomes the sacrifice. There's a reason we call it the game of life and death. It dates back to the Popol Vuh. You know the risks when you become a ball player, and you know the risks when you become a team leader. But some people get cold feet, and those people are cowards. Each Taka. He was a coward. In the weeks leading up to the sacrificial games, he fled. Some say he went south. Others say he went north. Still, others say he went west. The only thing we know for sure is that he didn't go east. But the point is that no one knew where he went. He was gone. Our team was without a captain, right before the big games. It was unheard of. Never before had a team been three weeks out from their first sacrificial match without a captain. Now there is something more you have to understand here. Much bigger forces at play. Or at least, so some speculate. Some, like Kuali, an expert in the political and religious tensions of the period. It's not just a game. It was never just a game. From the time of the Popol Vuh all the way to now, the game has been heavily political and heavily religious. So we're in the late 800s, right? The cult of Quetzalcoatl is on the rise as the Toltecs gained more of a foothold in central Mexico, and they were trying to spread their influence. The best ball game team in Tajin, the Flying Snakes, were very outspoken about their faith in Quetzalcoatl. And all of a sudden, a ball game team from southern Veracruz, Olmec territory, the land where the ball game began, a place that still has close ties to the Mayans and the Popol Vuh, all of a sudden they're in the running to play the sacrificial games. The people who wanted to believe immediately saw this as a chance to reinvigorate good old Mayan virtues. I mean, I couldn't write a better metaphor for the social struggle of the time if this were an entirely fictional story. And then out of nowhere, they start losing games and their leader runs off right before the main competition. I don't see how you can look at that situation and not think that Ichitaka was getting paid to throw games. And when he realized it was his head at the end, he up and left. Whether the people were bright enough to see the truth of the matter or not, is irrelevant. It sent a message to the people, and we might have seen the end of Mayan values right then and there if it hadn't been for Ah and Talali. Thank the gods for the brothers. The miracle of the brothers, the Tushla too. Oh, this is my favorite part of the story. That's Mana Uia, the great, 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 great granddaughter of Ah. And she has dedicated her life to knowing everything about her great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather and her great-great-great-great-great-great-great-granduncle. I'll let her tell this part of the story. From the town of Tushla, just south of Maison, emerged two brothers, Ott and Tali. One day, they walk into the frog's practice and demand that they're going to take them to victory if they make Ott the captain and Tali his second. And, understandably, the team thinks they're crazy. So the brothers challenge the whole team to a match. Just the two of them against the whole team. 
What ensued is quite possibly the greatest feat of ballgamemanship ever performed in South Veracruz, witnessed and attested only by the seven players on the field and Itotia, the team's water girl. And so, the team took on the brothers. Ott was named captain, and Talali his second. So the routine for the frogs became pretty straightforward. Train, practice, win, repeat. With the arrival of the brothers has come a renewed outlook and a bit of luck. The frogs have won every match so far in the sacrificial games. The final match is tomorrow against the flying snakes, and the team and the people of Messen are filled with hope. Another little part of this miracle is that the spare gear that the team had lying around actually fit them. Remember, this is back when ballgame players used giant carved pieces of stone as protective wear and to give them an advantage in bouncing the ball down the court. The most common of these are the U-shaped stones that were often carved with the team's insignia, but other pieces of stone shaped like palm branches and heads would be attached to other parts of the body. And most people say there's no way they could have moved around the court with that much stone strapped on their bodies. It must have weighed them down. But that's how it was before we started playing with wooden padding. Those players were tough. They did what they had to, and they didn't complain about the weight of the rock. Remember, when that ball gets going fast enough, if it hits you in the wrong spot, you're down. That is solid rubber. It's caused nearly fatal accidents on no fewer than 37 occasions. Now keep in mind that these stone pieces were specifically carved to fit the player that used them. The fact that the spare two that they had fit Ott and Talali was nothing short of a miracle. Just the miracle the team was looking for. If you think the metaphor of the team coming out of Southern Veracruz to play against the Flying Snakes, the Quetzalcoatl team, was too perfectly written to be believable, then the story of the brothers is even less believable. In Mayan tradition, the ball game is deeply tied with the ancient story of the Popol Vuh. The story goes that the hero twins, the Hunapu, had a father and uncle who were trapped in Xialba, the underworld. They had to pass test after test by the Xialba lords to set them free. The final test was a ball game. When they won the ball game, the hero twins retrieved the bodies of their uncle and father and placed them in the sky, where they became the sun and the moon. Another set of ball-playing brothers showing up in this miraculous fashion was just a reassurance to the people. But of course, that wasn't going to stand for the powers that be. And in that final match of the sacrificial games, the flying snakes played hardball. Literally. It was down to the wire. The final match. Winner take all. The big one. The one we've all been waiting for. They got off to a rough start, but the brothers intercepted the ball from the snakes and passed it down the court for the first point. In round two, the flying snakes were just about to score when Talali leapt up in front of the ball and slammed it to the ground to kill it. He made the calculation that it was worth the penalty to keep their team ahead. But ultimately, those few seconds of head start would give the third ball to the flying snakes. And then, then there was ball four. I mean, it's all just speculation. There was only one person who said they saw it happen, and that was Itotia, the team's water girl. She tried to tell the authorities that she had seen the members of the flying snakes replace one of the rubber balls. But the cult of the Quetzalcoatl have deep pockets, and the authorities wrote it off as the delusions of a stressed out water girl. 
but that ball hit harder than rubber. There was a rock in that rubber ball adding extra weight to it. There had to be. When that fourth ball went into play, it bounced around the court, from hip to knee to wall to shoulder, until eventually it hit Talali in the side of the head, and he was down. That was it. There was no way he could play. And if the Frogs couldn't feel the complete team, they'd have to forfeit. It would be Ott's head. If only he'd been wearing a Chamali helmet. Never have I felt more dread than that moment when Talali was struck. I saw our whole way of life flash before my eyes. This might have been the end of our world as we'd known it. Might have been. If it hadn't have been for one brave soul who stood up to play when the team needed them most. Itotia. 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 Fuck yeah. Yes, that's right. The most unlikely of ballgame heroes, Itotia, the water girl, ran up to the lockers, grabbed the gear she had kept with her for just some such moment as this, strapped up, and returned to the field for the fifth and final ball of the game. It was down to the last ball. One point for the flying snakes, one point for the frogs. Whoever got it into their opponent's open space would be the winner. They had to do this. For Masan. For the game. For Talali. It's written that the ball started in possession of the frogs, who knew the only hope was to get it to Ott to deliver the final blow. But out of nowhere, one of the flying snakes jumped up and pushed himself off the wall to intercept the ball mid-flight and bounce it to his team. Unfortunately for him, the move was such a spectacle that the person he had bounced the ball towards didn't notice that the ball was coming right for her, and it bounced off her hip piece in a random direction. Itotia saw the ball was about to die on the field when she thought fast. She slid on the ground, just underneath where the ball was going to land, and popped her hip up, lobbing the ball straight towards Ott. Now Ott did not have a clear shot at the end zone. The flying snakes were pulling what was commonly referred to as the two-headed jaguar. They had two players down at the other end of the field, both ready to jump whichever way the ball came and bounce it the other direction. And Ott read the scene better than anyone could. He saw the two-headed jaguar, and he knew he had only one move. He contorted his torso to the side. He swooped down, letting the ball pass just underneath him. He exposed the top of his hip piece, and with a burst of energy, he leapt up, sending the ball flying up in the air, high above the two players at the end of the court. In that moment, as the ball flew through the air, the crowd was silent and our hearts beat out of our chests. We all watched to see where the ball would go, and time stood still. I swear I said an entire prayer to the Hunapu brothers as that ball was up in the air. With a thud, the ball landed squarely in the end zone. The frogs had done it. They had won the sacrificial games of 889. And as for the captain of the flying snakes... The story of the frogs continues on to this day, passed down from parent to child as a reminder that bravery, courage, and determination will win out against cheating any day. And even though, as we all know, the Quetzalcoatl became the dominant religious ideology of today, 
The actions of the Messon Frogs and the Tushla Two and Itotia, the team's hero, they provided a hope for their people. A hope that comforted them through the end of one period and into the next. A hope that, albeit false, was important nonetheless. Even as the ends approach, and the winds of change are inevitable, hope will always have a place. That concludes our story for this evening. We hope you've enjoyed the program. And remember, always wear a helmet made by the fine folks over at Chamali when playing the ball game. Chamali, play harder, but play safer. Good night, folks. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Accession. If you're in the room of the museum with us, and you're looking at the model of the ballgame court, turn to your left, and in a glass case, you'll see the yokes, palmas, and hatches, the stone pieces that the players would attach to their bodies. It's pretty incredible. We'll talk more about these in a later episode. I've only barely scratched the surface of the ballgame. Our special thanks this week goes out to Christoph Heidbreeder, who played Mechet, Courtney Swanson, who played Nelly, Adam Ergonau, who played Kuali, and Amanda Borglund, who played Mana Uia, the voice acting talents in today's episode. Amanda was also instrumental in the idea for making this episode a sports mockumentary and provided feedback on the script along the way. Even more, Amanda also takes my scripts every week and lovingly turns them into transcripts. I can honestly say that the show wouldn't be what it is without her help, so thank you so much. The music that you hear at the beginning and the end of the show is played by Mike Harmon with editing and recording and engineering talents from Casey Dawson. You can hire him to make music for you at caseydawson.com. And our show art is made by V. Silverman, who you can hire to make art for you at vcsilverman.com. You should also be listening to their wonderful podcast, Fuzzy Logic. It's really quite good and really, really funny. This episode was produced, written, recorded, and edited by me, TH Ponders. You can follow me most places at TH Ponders and the show on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook at Accession FM. And as always, you can find the notes to the show, links to the art, and maybe a few other goodies on our website at accession.fm. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.